Whether you're a whiskey aficionado or new to the world of whiskeys, I invite you to pull up a chair and join me around the bar as we pour a dram and share in our love of all things whiskeys. Hi, I'm your host, Victor. You can call me Vic, and welcome to Distilled. Hello, hello. Welcome back to the bar. Welcome back to Distilled. Today we've got a bit of a fun episode going on. Uh, A couple of weeks ago, my lovely wife and I got to go on a date for the first time in about a month. That hashtag new parent life. Um, So we went to a place called Wolf Creek Tavern, just down the road from her parents. And they have a speakeasy in the basement. And here's the thing. This was a legit speakeasy. It really operated during the time of Prohibition. So we'll be talking a little bit about Prohibition and some cocktails that are uh, pretty popular, whiskey-based cocktails that purportedly were very popular during that time. And I'll give a little, some of my opinions about that. (laughs) But yeah, so a bit of a fun episode. And just kind of talking about... um, the allure of speakeasies, if you will, and some of the uh, couple of speakeasies that I've been to. Uh, one of which was a more modern one, hidden inside the neighborhood bar in downtown San Diego, uh, right at the end of Little Italy, the little quarter called Little Italy. And then talk a little bit about um, Wolf Creek Tavern's bar uh speak easy it was a lot of fun so let's get to it as always if you are able to and you have a drink go ahead and enjoy it make a cocktail um pour a whiskey pour a rye you know have fun so let's get into it prohibition so by the mid to late 1800s there were several states that um had actually passed their own local prohibitions, if you will. Temperance movement was gaining popularity, and uh, but it wasn't until January uh, 16th of 1919 that Congress ratified the 18th Amendment, passing a national prohibition. And the, um, the amendment had three sections, essentially. Section one said that after one year from the ratification, of that article, the manufacture, sale, and transportation of intoxicating liquors and the exportation of these uh, intoxicating liquors was prohibited. It was illegal. Uh, Section 2 gave Congress and the states the power to enforce this article uh, by appropriate legislation. And Section 3 basically says um, the article would be null and void. Uh, if it has not been ratified as an amendment uh, by the states and by Congress within seven years of its proposal. So it was proposed in December and then ratified a month later. The Volstead Act, which came shortly afterwards, clarified what they what Congress meant by intoxicating liquors. Uh, essentially, beer, wine, and distilled spirits that contained an alcohol percent of um, 0.5% alcohol by volume. 
but it did provide a couple of loopholes. Uh, alcohol that was prescribed by a doctor was fine for consumption. So, um, naturally, lots of new prescriptions were written. Um, and again, as we well know, the Noble Experiment kind of failed. Um, if anything, it drove more people to drink because they made it forbidden. And speaking of drinking, I'm having a Prohibition-era cocktail called the Scofflaw. It's one of the drinks that I'll be talking about in a bit. So, around this time, uh, the whiskey industry was still just getting back on its feet from the Civil War, but we still did not have a lot of good aged whiskey, and there was still a lot of uh, quote-unquote blended whiskeys that were really neutral grain spirits with a little bit of whiskey, um, and we were starting to see more of these in the market thanks to the Bottled and Bond Act and the Pure Food and Drug Act um, to help consumers, protect consumers. But then the 18th Amendment gets passed and that essentially destroyed everything. Um, people still wanted alcohol and there was a lot of money to be made. So we had, you know, bathtub gin was making people blind and poisoning them. Um, you had home distillers, more underground distillers and more raw white dog uh, moonshine. And the whiskeys that you did get um, produced here in the States really were not good. Um, if you could even call it whiskey, um, it was some kind of spirit made from rye or bourbon, uh, but it really wasn't that great. And so if you read a lot of um, Prohibition era cocktails, they'll say that these drinks were designed to mask how bad the flavors were. That's when we started seeing a lot more uh, citrus juices being incorporated into the mixing. But we also had a lot of gin being produced because you could just distill it and send it out. Whiskey requires some aging, and there just wasn't a lot of time to do that. So uh, I don't think there were really a lot of whiskey-based cocktails because we just... People just did not have the time to properly age it. Um, but gin and rum, white rum especially, requires almost no aging. So we had rum runners from Cuba. Um, lots of Americans were taking trips down to Cuba. And um, there were cruises that would go just outside the, um, the boundary line, territorial waters of the United States. And there was a cocktail called the 12-mile cocktail, I think, um, that was made with rum to celebrate the fact that they passed that 12-mile mark. And then Congress decided to extend the ter territorial waters like another six miles or so. And so then you had the 18-mile cocktail. Um, lots of Americans started going over to France and Parisian culture and cocktails really... Um, took off by that time too and so a lot of our cocktails actually came from uh, Paris a lot of popular ones here in the US came from Paris they were developed in Paris because that's where a lot of bartenders ended up moving to so then um, with speakeasies though people still wanted to drink here and so you had underground rooms underground bars hidden inside restaurants and other places of business 
and they might have a little peephole and there would be one person whose job was to keep a lookout and they'd send a signal back to the bar and everyone would hide the booze. There'd usually be like a hole in the wall. Uh, there might be something covering the hole. And there was another person whose job was to just sit behind that hole and they just collect the booze and hide it and stay very quiet. Um, the Wolf Creek Tavern speakeasy, this hole in the wall, it now serves as the liquor room, but uh, you can tell it was a legitimate speakeasy because it had that hole that someone had carved through the masonry and dug a cave in the back, and it was covered by a barrel head. Um, don't know what the original cover was, but now they use a barrel head, and it was underground. The speakeasy was built underground, underneath the restaurant. Uh, so it was really cool. It's dark and dingy. Uh, floorboards are creaking as people are walking around. And bartender Austin, really awesome dude, he uh, told us some stories. And the place is 100% haunted. Um, there's no doubt about it. He, he shared stories with us about being alone and turning a corner to go to the back room. And there would be a silhouette or some other person standing there uh just not doing anything and he's like nope turned around and walked back he also showed us a picture that a fellow bartender uh had taken a picture taken a picture of the bar and there's no one in the bar but in the mirror behind the bar you can see the side profile of a woman with her hair done up in that older 1920s kind of style uh so it was very creepy but uh yeah, my wife and I had a lot of fun doing that. We had a couple of drinks and uh, before dinner. And I went to another speakeasy in San Diego with a couple of friends. Don't remember the name of it. Um, but it was within the bar called the Neighborhood Bar in downtown San Diego. And you go into the Neighborhood Bar. You go through the restaurant towards the back. And there's a little hallway where the bathrooms are at. And... You turn to the right and you just see this wall of kegs and you just think, okay, bunch of kegs for the beer, but that's actually the entrance to the speakeasy. You go in, you knock on the door, someone opens it up, you put your name down. It was a very small, very intimate place, but they did craft cocktails. They carved their own ice. Um, they made their own liquors and bitters and it was just a lot of fun. So if you're able to go to a speakeasy, I highly encourage you try it out. You get more personalized service. They're usually smaller, more intimate affairs. And they're just so fun. Um, I really enjoy them. But um, let's get into some cocktails now. So these are all whiskey-based cocktails with the exception of one. and uh, But I think they're all really good ones. So to start with, we'll begin with, well the OG, the original, the old-fashioned. Um, the old-fashioned is really the definition of what a cocktail was. In the uh, 1700s, 1800s, um, cocktails were only one type of mixed drink. Nowadays, we call them all cocktails, but back then, they were broken down into different classes and families. And... Um, a cocktail was defined by Harry Croswell in 1806 as a stimulating liquor 
composed of spirits of any kind, sugar water, or excuse me, sugar, water, and bitters. So I talked about a toddy. A toddy would be, you, it, it was originally brandy, and it was supposed to be a um, more of a medicinal kind of drink, but it was brandy, sugar, and water, uh, and a cocktail uh, differentiated itself with the addition of bitters and with the uh, the old-fashioned there's a couple of ways you can make it short you can use the uh, put an orange wedge in the bottom with your sugar and your bitters and muddle it all together but um, the way I prefer it and it's more of a I guess traditional and classic way is you just muddle sugar and bitters and then you add your uh, whiskey, your ice, and you stir it up and then uh, top it with, you know, some water. Um, you can use club soda for sparkling and then you uh, can garnish it with an orange peel or if you want an orange wedge or a cherry. Personally, I think the orange actually kind of it doesn't quite ruin it, but it just, it alters the flavor a lot, and um, it can be a little bit more sweet. So, yeah, that's the old-fashioned, that is the original cocktail that kind of started everything. Um, then we've got the Whiskey Sour, uh, there's a Mint Julep, the Ward 8, the Highball, the Scofla, which I'm drinking now, and then I'll finish up with the Bee's Knees. The Bee's Knees, originally, it's not made with whiskey. But if you make it with whiskey, it's made with uh, gin, I believe. But if you make it with whiskey, it's what's called a gold rush. And it's one of, it's probably my favorite whiskey cocktail of all times. But anyway, so moving from the old-fashioned, um, get into the highball, also known as a whiskey and soda. Um, typically, so it came over in the early 1800s and it was originally known as a scotch and soda. And, um, it's like one part whiskey to two parts club soda served over ice, served in a highball glass. So a highball glass, it's a taller glass, um, kind of like a Collins glass, but it's thinner. Uh, the diameter is smaller. And the idea is you can tip it all the way back to get the last bits of your whiskey and the ice won't just fall out and down your front. Um, so that's a highball. A whiskey sour calls for uh, whiskey, fresh lemon juice, simple syrup, and a cherry to garnish. And what you do is you um, you'd combine your whiskey, your lemon juice, and your syrup in a cocktail shaker, fill it with ice, Cover it and shake it up for about 30 seconds. Um, what this does, so the difference between shaking and stirring, when you're incorporating uh, sweeteners like syrups and citrus juice with your base liquor, your base spirit, you really want to shake it up because these are liquids, these are compounds that they don't usually mix together. They'll stay separated if they're able to. But by shaking them up, you're forcing all the ingredients to bond together to create a single cohesive um, compound solution beverage. And when you're stirring it, it's a lot, usually a stirred drink is just 100% alcohol. You might be 
mixing three different types of alcohol. Um, like in a Manhattan, it's bitters, sweet vermouth, and whiskey. You just have to stir it up. You don't have to shake it. And it really blends the, uh, the alcohol together. But for these cocktails, you shake them up so that everything gets mixed. And the ice also helps to dilute it a little bit to help. Um, so it'll incorporate a little bit of water. With the whiskey sour too, if you want to um, change things up a bit, elevate it, take it to another level, add in egg white. I know a lot of people get iffy about raw eggs or nervous about raw eggs, but if you add egg whites, um, well, first of all, the alcohol is going to essentially kill whatever bacteria is in the egg. As a chef, I've consumed God knows how much raw egg in my life. I don't honestly think it's that big of a deal because we do pasteurize our eggs here in the U.S. But um, add the egg white to your liquor. Do not add the ice. So add the egg white, your whiskey, your lemon juice, your syrup in the shaker, close it, and give it what's called a dry shake. Just shake it up without ice, and that'll aerate the cocktail. Uh, the egg white will trap a whole bunch of air, and it'll bind all the ingredients together. And then you add your ice, and you shake it to chill it. And what it does is it gives it a really nice frothy uh, mouthfeel and a totally different texture, which is kind of fun. Um, moving on to the Ward 8. So the Ward 8 is essentially a whiskey sour, but it's got a hint of grenadine. So the Ward 8 falls within these sour families of cocktails. And uh, this is a fun one. So like most of these cocktails, this was created before prohibition, but um, it kind of endured. People liked it. And the story goes, it was created in 1898 at Boston's Lock Ober and named for the city's eighth ward. Uh, bartender Tom Hoosen supposedly devised it when his boss, Martin Lemansny was running for election in the district. So it was kind of a, um, a, a political promotion, if you will. Um, and this one, it calls for uh, two ounces of whiskey, bourbon or rye, three quarter ounce lemon juice, three quarter ounce orange juice, a dash of grenadine, and garnish with an orange slice or a maraschino cherry. Um, the reason some of these cocktails are so popular during the time during Prohibition was because they blended citrus juices to mask how awful the whiskey was. Um, the whiskey really was not great. So you see a lot of these calling for rye whiskey. Um, and they just were not good whiskeys. So the, uh, the introduction of the citrus juice to kind of mask it is where we start seeing a lot of these cocktails. Um, take on more popularity. But again, a lot of them were already created beforehand. Um, so, let's see. Next up, the Scofflaw. Um, the Scofflaw actually was not invented in America. It was invented over in Paris. And it was named after those people who scoffed at the law. And again, it's a fairly simple recipe. So it calls for two ounces of bourbon or rye. Usually, I think this was originally made with rye whiskey. Um, one ounce of dry vermouth, 
a quarter ounce of lemon juice freshly squeezed, and one to two dashes of grenadine. Uh, I've also seen the recipe call for up to a quarter ounce of grenadine. If you get the real pomegranate grenadine, you can go a little bit heavier on it. If you use the super syrupy sweet grenadine, definitely tone it down, dial it back. Um, yeah, so add the whiskey, dry vermouth, lemon juice, grenadine into a shaker with ice and shake until well chilled. Some modern variations of this cocktail call for orange bitters. I really don't think you need orange bitters if you're using true pomegranate grenadine. It's not overly sweet. I just find it very beautifully balanced as it is. Um, so the Scofflaw came about sometime in 1924-ish. Um, and it was invented by uh, Harry Craddock, bartender Harry Craddock, at Harry's Bar. This is during the height of Prohibition. But um, again, it was over in... Paris. It's a great sipper. Pretty refreshing. Um, I really enjoy it. Let's see. Next on our list, the the mint julep. So the mint julep actually originates in Arabia. Um, really interesting. So the mint julep originates in Arabia. It was shaved ice and either water infused with rose petals or rose water, uh, some mix of shaved ice, some kind of sugar, I'm sure, and uh, roses. And it was called a julab, made with water and rose petals. As the, uh, the drink moved into the Mediterranean, uh, the indigenous mint replaced the rose petals, and the mint julep started to rise in popularity. Uh, it was described as a dram of spiritus liquor that has mint in it, taken by Virginians in the morning. This is the first time it was, it got its, uh, a printed mention of it in 1803. Um, and it was kind of popularized in Kentucky by U.S. Senator Henry Clay. He introduced the drink to Washington, D.C. in 1850. And... In 1983, it became the official drink of the Kentucky Derby. Uh, the drink also was mentioned in The Great Gatsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. And uh, I think it was by Daisy. Yeah, Daisy mentions it. And uh, it was also a very popular drink from President Theodore Roosevelt, the 26th president. Uh, he used to bribe some of his advisors to come play tennis with him by offering them mint juleps. And uh, even though a lot of recipes call for bourbon, President Roosevelt had his own version that called for rye whiskey. And uh, his, recipe, uh, his recipe called for 10 to 12 fresh mint leaves muddled with a splash of water and a sugar cube to help make that mint paste, two to three ounces of rye whiskey, a quarter ounce of brandy, and one to two sprigs fresh mint as a garnish. First, you fill a bar glass um, with muddled mint, then fill the glass generously with finely crushed ice, top it off with rye, brandy, and the mint garnish. Um, 
I know usually people serve it in a silver goblet nowadays, but, you know, if you can't do it, a rocks glass is totally fine. Um, the famed actress Scarlett O'Hara uh, loved the smell. Um, she's quoted as saying, his breath, in, his breath in her face was strong with bourbon, whiskey mingled with the fair fragrance of mint, accompanying him... Also were the smells of chewing tobacco, well-oiled leather, and horses, a combination of odors that she always associated with her father and instinctively liked in other men. No comment on that, uh, <laughs> but uh, she, she was fond of the smell of a mint, julep, bourbon, and mint. And again, this would be a good cocktail during Prohibition because mint is a very aromatic herb. And it just kind of dominates everything. If you've ever had lamb with mint jelly, you know what I'm talking about. You don't t really taste the lamb. You taste the mint jelly. Um, so if you've got really bad, cheap bourbon, mint will cover up a multitude of sins. However, if you have really, really good bourbon, the mint is, it just elevates it. And it is so delicious. Um, many U.S. presidents loved it. And Hemingway also is reported to have gotten very mad over a very bad uh, mint julep that he had in a French ballroom once. Story goes, um, he allegedly smashed a glass against a wall and bellowed, doesn't anyone in this godforsaken country know how to make a mint julep? Some traveling Kentuckians witnessing his frustration produced a bottle of Maker's Mark conveniently nestled in their travel bag, ordered the barkeep to gather up some fresh mint, and soon produced the quote-unquote real deal. So, there you have it. Uh, now for the bee's knees. This was another Prohibition-era cocktail, but this time it's made with gin, lemon juice, and honey. And the name came from the slang, hey man, that's the bee's knees, meaning that's great, it's a fantastic drink. Uh, it's credited to Frank Mayer, a bartender who worked at the Hotel Ritz Paris during the 20s. So again, we're seeing these cocktails that are very popular during Prohibition era in the U.S. coming out of France because that's where the bartenders went. That's where the people went. Um, and it's essentially an extension of the gin sour. Gin sour. Again, gin, lemon juice, and sugar. Um... If you're ever making a sour cocktail, do not use a pre-made sour mix. All you need is lemon juice and sugar. Um, but this one, instead of honey, or instead of sugar, it uses honey. And you can make um, a honey syrup the same way that you would make simple syrup. You can do a one-to-one -one ratio of honey to water. And with simple syrup, you can also do it you know, one-to-one -one with sugar and water. But uh, if you substitute the gin for, excuse me, if you substitute whiskey for the gin, and specifically bourbon for the gin, you get what's called a gold rush, and it is one of my favorite drinks. Um, so yeah, those are uh, just some of my favorite uh, classic cocktails that were very popular during the time of Prohibition. Um, really, the only cocktails that truly came out of the Prohibition 
is probably the French 75, which calls for uh, gin and champagne, if I remember rightly. Uh, a lot of these cocktails, they were already in existence, and, um, you know, bartenders just knew how to make them. It was kind of a golden age of cocktails, ironically. Um, so, yeah, if you are thinking of hosting a 1920s-themed party, a Prohibition-themed party, definitely check these out. Again, I'll go through the list. Uh, an old-fashioned, a highball, a whiskey sour, a Ward 8, a Scofflaw, a Mint Julep, and the Bee's Knees, or you can do a Gold Rush. Um, yeah, have some fun with it. Prohibition era, there's just something about the Prohibition, probably that rebellious spirit that just seems to go throughout the American persona, American history. Um, don't know what it is, really. Uh, and I'll probably go deeper into uh, Prohibition, more of the history of it. This was just kind of a, hey, we went to a really fun speakeasy for a date night. And things are a little hectic this week, so I'm just going to talk about some fun cocktails and make one and have it. And uh, if you become a patron, I'll go into how to actually mix some of these drinks. I'll be putting up some videos of that as soon as I get my camera and tripod. Thank you again for listening. Thank you everyone for your support. If you haven't done so already, make sure to uh, subscribe to the podcast so you get notifications and uh, we drop every Tuesday. And if you're on Apple Podcasts, give us a five-star rating. Also check us out on Instagram. That is at instagram.com slash distilled, D-I-S-T-I-L-L dot D. Be sure to check out the website www.distilled.me. There are some links where you can either make a one-time donation to the podcast, and I graciously accept those donations. They help me uh, purchase new alcohol and help the podcast kind of pay for itself. Uh, You can also become a patron at the Distilled website. I've got a link that takes you to our Patreon or you can go to patreon.com slash distilled, D-I-S-T-I-L-L-D. All your uh, donations really do help me create content to promote the podcast and um, even create content for the podcast. Um, Your donations help me buy whiskey. So I just purchased a bottle of Four Roses single barrel that I'm looking forward to. Should be receiving it in the next couple of days. All thanks to your contributions. Uh, check us out on Instagram again. We've got content going up on Patreon. I'll be recording uh, new videos for how to mix a lot of these drinks that I talk about. And um, also make sure to check out the Distilled store, the merchandise store at distilled.me store. Or there's a link in the nav bar. Uh, I've got t-shirts. I've got trucker caps. I might throw up another style of cap. I'm waiting to see what the sample looks like. But these uh, these t-shirts with the distilled logo, they're super soft and super comfortable. So I definitely recommend them. Check them out. I think they're fairly cheap. They're cheaper than you will find at most places. Most places sell t-shirts for like 20 bucks. I'm selling mine for about 16. So thank you again for your support. 
Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful day. Stay safe. Cheers.